as we prepare to hear God's word, um, I'm going to ask you if you do would like to, you can open your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 10, but we'll not only be in that chapter today, we're going to be looking at a lot of different uh, uh, selections of scripture as we contemplate what it means to fear God. And so, but I'm going to begin our reading before I pray and we start our consideration this morning. I'm going to begin by reading Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 6 and 7. So listen as I read God's word. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all of their kingdoms, there is none like you. Let's pray. Our great God, as we uh, turn our attention once again to, to hear your word, particularly as it instructs us with a, a strange and uncommon sense of the idea of fear, one that takes it from what would generally be considered a negative sense and really sets it forth as desirable and pleasant. Lord, I just pray that you'll help that as we contemplate these things in your word, that it would be of, uh, of great richness to our own hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. The, of course, the opening verse that I read, in just a brief contemplation of who God is in his absolute incomparable nature, just in that, that, those brief two verses, we see incomparable really in his might and incomparable in his wisdom. Who would not fear you is the question. For this is your due. Fear is due to God from every single created thing. Even us. Even those who are not believers. Now there are different expressions and different nuances to the concept of fear as we open it up in the scriptures. I want to try to present this idea as simply and clearly as possible. Um, when you look at the idea of fear, it carries generally at least five primary senses when you're looking at the main meat of this word in the scriptures. Uh, the first sense of this word as used throughout the scriptures is this, ad, abject terror, just fright, a sense of overcoming fear, that which is related to that emotion and that emotional response to fear, which is something that some people like and find themselves inclined to watching horror films and the like. And others, not so much. Don't ever want to see those kinds of films. Don't even want to see little clips of those kinds of things. They avert their eyes, look away. They don't want that feeling at all. And so there's, there's different people on different sides of that. But it, it affects our feelings and how a person feels in response to those things. The second sense of fear is not just the fear and terror in the moment of something actually happening, but the scripture also carries the sense of 
uh, an intellectual anticipation of bad or calamity or judgment or problems. And so it is, it is still a, a fear that is emotionally experienced right now very strongly, but it's not as a result to immediate stimuli, but as a result of thinking about what will happen or what might happen. Right? Those are the, the first two. Now we move on be, be, beyond those, which are kind of the normal, the, the usual, and what we continue to experience now. Uh, to the idea of the third sense of it is the idea of a reverential awe. A sense of profound and deep respect holding in such high regard and high esteem that there is a desire to always uh, be approved by that individual and not do anything that would be displeasing to that one because of how highly we hold regard and esteem that one in reverence and awe. Okay? So it's well beyond the idea of merely impressed. Uh, the fourth sense of it carries the idea of godly living or living in piety. Living in such a way that you know that the things you do have implications. Implications for the future, possibly in judgment, or implications for the present in terms of communion and relationship. But it, it affects the way that a person lives. And then the fifth way the scriptures use it is the idea of worship. It's used as a synonym for worship. I want to get into this first of all by looking at the broadest concept of fear, and that is the fear that is due to God by all creation, and a fear that men who know not Christ, who know not the salvation and forgiveness of sin, need to be aware of. There's a time, the scripture tells us, when the Son of Man appears from heaven, and all the nations of the earth will wail or moan as he comes. You know, that's not a whoop of excitement. I mean, that is absolute terror. As he comes with his Holy One, vengeance in his wake, the, the tongue of sword in his mouth, bringing judgment on those who have defied him. This is, it is strong language in the scripture. And sometimes it's important that we understand that sense of the fear of God. We do live in a generation in which we so glory in the reality of God's mercy and compassion, patience, and love that we speak so much of that, and even to the unbeliever, we speak almost exclusively of that to where there's no sense of fear, to where the idea that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Who's coming? The one who loves me? Great! Not, it's not carrying that sense. It's not bringing to them a real feeling of fear. It ought to. Of course, it won't if they don't believe that there's a God. It won't if they don't sense that it's true. Remember what the scriptures say. In Job chapter 34, we have the words of Elihu. He is the youngest of the friends of Job. He is the fourth friend. 
The first three did not speak accurately concerning God, and then God uses young Elihu to bring proper correction and godly wisdom to these older men. So let us just be aware. Uh, age can bring wisdom, but it doesn't always bring wisdom. All right? And youth surely doesn't always bring wisdom, but when it is instructed... In the wisdom of God. That's what really makes the difference one way or another, not, not so much age. He says this in Job 34, verse 21 to 25. For his eyes, speaking of God, are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps, and there is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. They think there's a place they can go and somehow it will escape God's notice and awareness. They are wrong. The, we we talked about it before. The, the notion of secret sins. All right? You have secret sins. I have secret sins. Means they're secret from one another. They are not secret to God. There is no such thing as secret sins before God. There's no such thing as secrets from God. You know, maybe at, at times you might think of another person, I hope they don't know what I'm thinking right now. Or you might ask yourself, I wonder what they're thinking right now. None of that happens with God. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows exactly why you're thinking it. He knows exactly the implications of those thoughts and the action that it's going to produce. He knows it all. Nothing is hidden. Listen, verse 23. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. Again, that's a comparative to our own legal and judicial system. If we, someone is going to be judged, lose their job, incarcerated, whatever the case may be, we would feel this is not right if there's not been a proper investigation. We need multiple witnesses, we need forensic evidence. We, we need all of these kinds of things. And after we have all of these things and really carefully look at and scrutinize them, then we will enter into judgment. God doesn't need all that. There, there does not need to be a moment of investigation. There doesn't need to be a, a contemplation of what all it is. God absolutely knows all things. In, in Psalm 139... So rich psalm, and I encourage you to read it. There's a lot of passages we're going to cover today, so I'm going to just draw your attention to Psalm 139. The psalmist in Psalm 139 speaks of God as knowing all of his thoughts, as knowing all of his ways, as knowing all of his words even before they're on his tongue. So, I mean, this is the God that we stand before. There are, there's nothing hidden Everything is laid bare before him. You know, as we were discussing earlier this morning, it is, it, it's, 
not only as if he can hear all of our thoughts, he can see all of our imagination. He is aware of all of our doings. It's as if everything is, is just blinking forth. And there are possibly things in your life and things in your thoughts that if it was to shimmer across your shirt in LED format telling what you were thinking and what was going on, you'd be really uncomfortable with that. Right? I, the, it, if there was no way to hide our thoughts from one another, we might just disengage altogether from communicating and meeting with one another. Right? Because uh, it wouldn't be long and we'd all be at enmity with one another. Which is why it's not surprised that all men by nature find themselves at enmity with God. Because they can't hide from Him. He knows all of their inner workings. Even the idea in Psalm 139 keeps going further. It says, He knows my paths, He knows my lying down, He knows my comings. No matter where I go, if I was to go up to the heavens, I can't escape His presence. If I was to go down to Sheol, the place of departed spirits, I can't escape His presence. If I was to and I'll put it into more common language, spontaneously and unplanned make a trip. He's already gone before me there and prepared my way. There's just no way that I can surprise him, no way that I can escape him, no way that I can confuse him, no way that I can hide a thing from him. Now that said, that's kind of reason to fear God, isn't it? Because we can escape people's notice. Men can make other men think they are pretty good, pretty godly, pretty loving, genuine, and sincere. But God knows what is false flattery, what is pure pretense. God is able to say in his word, why do you worship me with your lips? when your hearts are far from me. Now, generally, even the person he's saying that to is probably going to say, no, it's not. My heart's not far from you. I, I'm right here. No, there's no arguing with God because the, the, the challenge is this. We don't even know our hearts as well as God does. Means, listen, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And part of the reason for that is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're told in the, in the epistles of men who are deceiving themselves and deceiving others. I've known a lot of people who have done some mean, mean, mean things to others, but convinced themselves their intentions were good. I, you know, I know it hurt them, but my intentions were good. Well, if your intentions were good, it might have been nice if your methods were good too. If your methods were similar to your intentions. Or, but we are so deficient and we are so self-deceiving because at times our intentions weren't even good unless the good intention is to get back at them, which it's not.
All right. And so this, this amazing, powerful presence of God, that's why in the book of Hebrews it says this, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30 and 31, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I fear that many in modern Christendom have removed the fear from the Lord. The fear from the gospel. The fear of a sense of his holiness and sure impending judgment apart from forgiveness. And it's hard for my mind also not to go to Isaiah chapter 6. We remember that occasion. Isaiah finds himself in a vision seeing God seated on the throne. Now, it's not a clear picture. The whole room is filled with smoke and he wouldn't need to or nor want to see God unabated because no one can see God and live. And so he sees this glory emanating from the throne. And in this vision, what does he cry out in Isaiah 6? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am an unclean man of unclean lips from an unclean people. You think, slow down, Isaiah. <laughs> Aren't you getting a little carried away? I mean, are, are all the people really like that? And you, of course, of all people, you're a prophet. You're the godly one. Well, men's supposed godliness in the presence of God's utter holiness is what? Nothing. And so he says this, woe is me, I am undone. He's absolutely crushed within himself and then it tells us that an angel goes and with tongs takes a burning coal and floats on over there and touches it to his lips which i find terrifying too <laughs> and the, you know the not a, but but somehow the the poetic picture of that prophecy presents the, the fear of burning coals approaching the lips which literally sounds to me horrifying is nothing compared to how much he is overwrought at the holiness and majesty of God. That this little burning coal coming out his mouth is, is a small thing by comparison. And it touches his lips and then he is spoken of as having his sin atoned for. And, but that is the, the reality, that the utter fear that men ought to have some sense of. Now, I want to put something out there before we move into uh, other applications of this fear. When considering the fear of God, the many in the modern church, their favorite verse comes out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. And it says this in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so he, the argument goes like this. You love God, 
God loves you. There's no place for fear. Stop your fearing. All fear is gone. They will claim and say, based on this verse, fear and love are absolutely incompatible. And on the surface, when you read that verse, kind of looks like it says that, doesn't it? Except what do you go back to? The immediate context, and when you read the verses above it, it speaks about those who are in God and that God abides in them. And in verse 17 it says this, By this love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love. So the fear that is absolutely inconsistent now with our position of in love in regard to our relationship with Christ, the fear is a fear on the day of judgment. That fear is removed. Because if you are still fearing for the day of judgment, then what's lacking is faith. Because your faith is rooted in the sure confidence that Christ has borne the wrath for you. And you will stand forgiven, accepted, beloved in Him. That on that day, you don't fear that you will face ultimate and eternal punishment, but you come into that day with the sure confidence of acceptance in Christ Jesus. So with regard to the day of judgment, we have no fear of eternal punishment and separation from God because our faith has eradicated that fear by pour, as God poured His love into our hearts and we then, as the following verse says, love Him as He first loved us. So there is, there is no place for that kind of fear. Now the sad thing about these... Dear saints, who I guess it looks like they're trying to be faithful to the scriptures because they're reading 1 John 4 and trying to say what it says we believe, are tragically ignoring there are a number of New Testament passages that encourage believers to walk in the fear of the Lord, to fear God. 1 Peter ends with that phrase, fear God, in that last verse. And so the, the problem is when someone wants to build their whole understanding from one little verse and from one little verse ignoring the verses around it. And it all gets messed up. There is a place for godly fear that is very important. The same kind of thing. We live in this world where uh, we don't need to have the fear that the godless would have. But there is a place for godly fear. Just like there, the scripture speaks of grief and godly grief. Godly grief does what? Brings a person to repentance. The other does what? Just makes them feel bad. Just makes them wish things were better. Just want, makes them hope for improvement. And so what I want us to begin to see this is um, even in the words of Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those that can kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that fear is removed from us. We don't fear our body and soul being destroyed in hell. By abiding in God through an expression of faith that is a genuine confession of Christ and all that He is to us, that fear is gone. But in its place will be another fear, a blessed fear, a godly fear. I want us to see uh, the concept of fear briefly, really looking at it from the perspective of God. Okay, one thing I want us to note is this. Fear is something that God requires. Which is kind of an unexpected thing. And we, we encounter it, first of all, even in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, it's a number of places in Deuteronomy, but for brevity I'm going to draw your attention to one of them. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 through 15. It says this. And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? I mean, that's a, that's a great introduction, right? What does the Lord your God require of you? And so what's going to follow is what? What the Lord requires of them. Wonderful order of sentence. Very clear to understand. Now, what's amazing is we, I think, off overlook the first thing that's stated here. What does it say? To fear... The Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes the Lord has given you today for your good. Okay? This is what is required of you. Now, all of these other things, now what's amazing is we would think, well, I think the order is wrong. I think love should have come first. And then, uh, so let's just move things around. Should we move things around? No. And one of the reasons it's like this is because uh, the love that we have for God, it's interlaced with fear. The service that we render to God, it is interlaced with and flows out of a love and fear. The obedience that we give to God's commandments, it flows out of what? The love and fear that we have for God. And it's important for us to begin to see how these pieces all necessarily work together. So fear is in a sense... Required, And we're going to look at how that fear is expressed when we look at it from our angle. The second thing I want to see us to see from God's perspective is not only is fear required, the fear of God is required, but God takes pleasure in those who fear Him. Psalm 147, verse 10 and 11 say this, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. Which means a man's endeavors, a man's accomplishments. Why? Because anything, any skills, any talents, any ability that a man has, where did he get that from? God. So when, when he exercises those things and uses to, them to accomplish things in this world, is God remarkably impressed? I didn't know you could do that. Is that, is that going to happen? Or how you did that so good? Where did you get that talent? Well, 
his mother would say from me, or his father would say, but it's not impressive to God. Those things are not the things that are pleasing to him, the displays of our skills and strength, or even the greater skills and strength of other things in creation. But it goes on to say this, but the Lord takes pleasure in what? Those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Now, if we were to send out a poll and gather opinions from men and say, the Lord doesn't take pleasure in this, the horse or the strength of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who blank him. What do you think the world would be filling in there? Or what do you think the church would be filling in there? Well, some would say, serve. Some would say, obey. Some would say, most would say, love. Right? And I wouldn't say that those are entirely wrong answers. But sometimes we take those partially right answers and we make them the full answer. <laughs> And we make them the centerpiece of all that we are. Here it says, rather than those things, those who fear the Lord. Those who relate in this world and before God with an absolute right regard and reverence for who He is. If you have a right regard for who He is in His being, who He is in His character, I'll be very clear with you. That will express itself in, in love and amazement. And that will then move on to produce service and obedience. It's interesting because the scriptures will tell us things like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One of the things that I think we need to begin to understand is this. When the Spirit of God begins to work on our heart, He, he first comes and He brings that sense of conviction. A conviction of sin, which comes through the Gospel with a revelation of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And the right response to that, I might say, is an Isaiah response. Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am undone. That, that, that sense of fear would really wash over us as we consider that. But God doesn't leave us merely there, those in whom He's pouring out His Spirit on, because what does He do? The Spirit not only brings conviction of sin, but He pours Him in, into our hearts in love. And so then that fear is shortly followed in grace by what? Love. And that fear and love that God has wrought in our hearts by the working of the Holy Spirit, then by grace continues to produce what in our lives? Service and obedience that flows out of fear and love. And I want us to just begin to grasp it. it when it says, He takes pleasure in those who fear Him. It is a big statement. It includes all of those things that we're going to see are, are elements of those who fear him. Fear really almost is, is a preceding term that begins to take up the following concepts of love and service and obedience and worship and sacrifice. I want to see also from God's perspective, watch care. 
Psalm 33, verse 18 and 19, we see God's watch care. It says this, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who hope in his steadfast love. Again, I love the fact that what you see here is fear and hope, fear and love, fear and faith. They don't cancel each other out. They work so wonderfully in union together. The eye of the Lord. Now, someone might be saying, hold on a second. Didn't you just say a little bit earlier, he looks down on all the children of men. So his eye is on everybody. Well, there is a sense in which his eye is on everybody. But this is in the poetic sense of his eye is upon is the phrase, is the, uh, it's phrased in a special way that's not on the others. The scriptures will often use these kinds of poetic terms to help us get a sense of it. The idea that um, God uh, hid his face from me. The, that's strange language, isn't it? For God who is spirit, and he hid it where? And why did he hide it when I didn't even get a chance to actually see it in the first place? Well, it, 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 the import of that phrase is much more. The hiding of his face means I, I no longer feel the closeness, the intimacy, the sense of his, his nearness and pleasure. I actually feel like he's, he's uh, distant from me and I, I'm sort of alone and despondent. That's the sense of it. And it's put poetically. And, and so we've got to grasp those ideas. His eye is on those who fear him. He looks upon them in a special way. With attentiveness, compassion, patience, mercy. That's a special place to be. Now, everyone needs to fear him. But those who fear him that he looks upon in this way, it's not that fear of final judgment because this is the fear that's combined with a hope in his steadfast love. Those, uh, from God's perspective also, it is those who, are, who fear him that he engages and enters into close communion with. Psalm 25 verse 14 says this, now this is an interesting one because all of your translations will say different things. It says this in Psalm 25, verse 14, the ESV says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Right. So, the friendship of the Lord is not for all of mankind, but it is especially towards the God-fearers. And then it goes on to say, And He makes known to them... Who's them? Those who fear God, His covenant, which, which is a means by which He engages Himself in communion with those people in covenant. Now, what I want us to see here is this. Uh, the word there, some of you who are using other translations, it will say there, not the friendship of the Lord, it will say the secret counsel. Or some just say, the secret of the Lord, which sounds peculiar again, like there's some little 
whisper issue you got going on with him that no one else has. The, to, to get a sense of this term, it's a Hebrew term, sod. This term it, it most clearly communicates this idea of a confidential communication. Okay? So not, not just a... Not just a secret counsel, but a confidential counsel. It's not one. It's not one that's open to all. It's not one that's declared in the ears of all. Now, remember, this is back in the days of the old, uh, the Old Testament, right? And so they had their law, they had their judgments, they had the prophets, and and that could be read and could be read to all of them. But there would be a way in which for somebody like David the psalmist, for many of the prophets, for those who, who were God-fearers walking with him, they would have a special counsel of God. They would have a special intimacy and close communion with him that simply wasn't available to people at large. He did not give his covenant randomly to people at large, but the covenant that he would make known, this is really prophetic, the covenant he would make known, it would be made known to them, those who are the God-fearers. And to, uh, to get a, a good sense of this idea, let us look at the God-fearers. Begin to turn our attention to them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Psalm 111, verse 10. Psalm 111, verse 10. It's also a number of places in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a necessary starting point. What's also interesting, if you look at the phrasing of that, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding his praise endures forever. So fear is something that goes beyond a mere feeling, but is something that is practiced. Which is, you know, not our English sense of the word, which is why we, we begin to look at how the word fear oftentimes coincides with godly living, or what some have called piety. And we're going to see something about that momentarily. Um, Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, so, so in, the, in the way that the wisdom language works, if someone fears the Lord, what they're going to want to do is give themselves to His wisdom and His instruction. If they don't fear the Lord, they could care less about His wisdom and His instruction. And so it's, it's that heart that impels someone towards a desire to know Him more and know what pleases Him more. A fear, but it's not a fear merely of judgment. I want to see something more. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says this in verse 10. He says, um, Moses says, speaking of the day where they were gathered together at the mountain for judgment, it says this uh, when he gave the law, Deuteronomy 4.10. How on that day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, 
that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days of their life that they live. All right, this is, again, I'm going a little bit further. So, fear is required. Fear is important. Fear is necessary. How is fear acquired? It is required. How is it acquired? Here it says, it is learned. How is it learned? Through instruction, the previous verse we learned. Where does this instruction come from? The wisdom of spiritual men? Shall we read a bunch of biographies of monks? Not necessary. It comes where? That they hear my words so that they learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. And that they may teach their children also. How is it? By hearing the word of the Lord we learn to fear. And then we teach our children. And how do we teach our children? By teaching them the word of the Lord. Pretty simple, isn't it? Well, I want to see also in Deuteronomy chapter 14, if you were to jump forward, verse 23. Not only his word is uh, the means by which we see and come to fear him and express that fear as we live according to his word. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23 says this. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name known and dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, and of your wine, and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So part of learning to fear is, one, you learn his word. What is also part of learning to fear? You do what his word says. He, he told them where they would worship, how they would worship, and in attending to his word attentively, fearfully, and in living out his word, living and applying their lives according to his instructions, they learn fear. So fear isn't a, just a, a finished product. We're all learning and growing in the fear of the Lord. But it's, it's so good to know this. Just one more section in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 19 and following, this is the passage where God is instructing that whoever's going to be a king and there will be a king over Israel, he has to take the Bible, the word of the law that had been given, and he has to write out a copy for himself. And then he has to take that copy and he has to keep that copy with him. And of that copy, he has to read every day. And it says this, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 17, And he, it shall be with him, he shall read it in all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping his commandments. So fear is something that is internal. And fear is also something that what? is external. Because why? Well, I mean, obviously it's first internal. But if someone says, I fear the Lord, and then they won't keep his commandments, you really believe in that? 
Someone says, I love the Lord, and they won't keep his commandments. You really believe in that? You may or may not, but they would be. Uh, one last one in Deuteronomy. They were to assemble the people. Verse Deuteronomy 12, 31, 12. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the little ones, the sojourners within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. So again, so, so how does... So I might say this. Fear comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. Wait a second, that sounded similar to something else. Didn't it? Well, it sounded similar to what we hear in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of Christ. And so all of these... So what we begin to sense is this. The gracious working of God that reveals our sin, reveals our unworthiness, that lays us low, that transforms our hearts, that fills us with a love for Him, that moves us to a joyful obedience. Is that all God working in grace by His Spirit through His Word? Yes. Yes. No small thing. That they may be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. This is how it will come. By hearing. Right now I want to, I want to show you something else. And, and, and So it sounds to me like you are linking the ideas of fear and faith. And I will clearly assert, well noted, because I am. And I'm not the first. Please, because I want you to see this with your own eyes. Look with me in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12. Fear is part and parcel of obedience producing faith. Where we've gone from the fear of judgment, but we stand in absolute reverence and amazement and a desire to please and, 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 a, and a hatred at the thought of displeasing. Genesis 22. Now, as you get to Genesis 22, verse 12, this is where Abraham has been told, Go, take your son, your only son who you love, and sacrifice him to me. Right? This is the passage of which, when we remember Romans chapter 4, it looks back on Abraham's obedience and says his faith was reckoned as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. The, the act of, willing, of sacrificing his son was an expression of the faith that was in his heart. Right? Because the faith that God grants is always expressed in the decisions we make. Not only the hardest decisions a man might ever make, but it affects all the decisions we make. But look at how Genesis 22.12 puts it. He says to him, stops him mid-thrust. Do not lay your hands on the boy or do any harm to him. For now I know 
that you fear God. Wait a second. Again, shouldn't we reword this for the Holy Spirit? Now I know that you obey God. Now I know that you believe God because Hebrews puts in there that, well, he believed God also could raise him from the dead. So uh, wasn't this an act of faith? Yes. Wasn't this an act of obedience? Yes. Is this an act of fear? Yes. What I'm trying to get here, and I hope it's happening, a lot of people want to divide so sharply the concepts of faith and obedience. Divide so sharply the idea of the ideas of fear and love. God groups these all together as, as a rich expression of the way that we see him, the way that we respond to him, the way that we look to him. So it's very important. When, when I get the sense and when I understand that I stand before God in fear and in and love. That's my regard. And that's the relationship that I have with him. Does that not affect things? There are some who, who see phrases like Abraham's friendship with God. Abraham was a friend of God. And we know of our closeness, our intimacy, our adoption, and our love. And we can call him Abba, Father. Speaking of that familial closeness and intimacy. But there are ways to take that richness of that close relationship we have of love with God and trivialize it. You know, generally speaking, I mean, well, actually speaking, God's not our peer. And we ought never forget that. You know, we sometimes as an an if God is pleased, in families can cultivate a real closeness where there can be um, uh, love and games and, and even some interaction with, with jesting, joking between fathers and sons. But still, when my son comes home from college, I don't expect him to walk in the door and say, what's up, dude? I just don't expect him to say that to me because... He, he doesn't think of me as a dude. <laughs> you know, as just, you know, one of those guys, someone else. I, I remain, in spite of our intimacy, I remain his father. And, and, and that's a distinctive relationship that bears significance in how we interact with one another. It, it doesn't create a separation. It actually creates a rich closeness. And, and there is something that sometimes is lost when, when God is brought down uh, to, to this ordinary level of a human friend, you know, our buddy who art in heaven. You know, th that's not the Lord's Prayer. It, 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 just, it just carries the, the wrong feeling and the wrong sense of it. And as a result of that, we also start to go so much further. And many of the praise songs you might listen to, when you're done with it, you're thinking, I don't know if that was to God or his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the, from the words in there, I really couldn't 
tell the difference. He could, or maybe if they change just one word. And then we start to phrase, instead of the expression of, of, of the fullness of love in our heart for God, we start talking about the day that we fell in love with Him. We don't need to use those unnecessary phrases. The day that, that He poured His love into our hearts, that makes sense. The day, the day that by grace we came to love Him above and beyond all else that is in the world, yes. But I fell in love with him. You know? Now, some people say that and they're influenced by the culture and they mean it as a genuine expression of love. And, and uh, genuine expressions of love, I appreciate that. But we want to do our best to recapture right expression and not be slaves to the language of our culture and hold God in a right regard and reverence. All right, let me keep getting through here if I can. So, now I know that you fear me, seeing that you have not withheld your only son. This act that Genesis calls fear God, the rest of the scriptures call what? Faith. Mm. We also see this. Uh, Fear, the fear of God is, is an expression that someone would use in the Old Testament as a declaration of their own integrity. Joshua does that. Uh, I mean, Joseph does that in Genesis 42, verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to his brothers, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. Here's how you know that I'm going to be a man of integrity, a man of my word. I know he hears what I say. I know I answer to him for every, every word that I say. And so uh, another way of speaking of integrity was to say fear God. Ought we be people who have integrity? Yes. But the grounds for our integrity is not simply the desire to be moral. Not this is the desire to be better, but that we know that we live before the face of God. That His eyes are upon us and we desire and delight to please Him. Uh, godly character, moreover, is mentioned in this way. In, Exodus, in the time of Exodus, when Moses was struggling with all the judgment that was necessary, in Exodus 18, verse 21, his father-in-law gave him this instruction. Moreover, look for able men from all the people Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people. So here, fear God is for the same idea of integrity or character. Men who know that everything they do, God sees it and that knowledge influence what they do. Not simply the fear of the judgment that's coming. In other words, I might state it like this. Um, if a child and a parent, a parent has informed a child, I do not want you to do this thing. The idea is very clear. And while the parent is maybe watching them in that environment where they've been told not to do that thing, and looking at their parent, what's, what's the likelihood they're going to do it? 
Well, if the parent's watching, they may avoid doing it. They may restrain themselves. What if one day the parent comes to them and says, Look, I don't want you to do it. But if you do it today, there's not going to be any punishment for that. No punishment today. You, you have free reign today, but know that I don't want you to do this. It's a different situation, isn't it? Now there are some children in that situation be like, yeah, free reign, and they're going to do it. And they're going to do it multiple times and, and, and thinking, I'll get it out of my system, but sin doesn't work that way. You don't get sin out of your system. It just gets deeper and deeper ingrained. Uh, but there would be some children who we might say really love their parents. Really have a healthy respect and regard for their parents. That even knowing their parents there, it's time to do the wrong thing. No harsh looks. No. Nothing. Do they do it? There are some who would say, I'm not going to do it because I know that even though punishment is not coming to me, I know they don't want me to do it. I know it doesn't please them. I know they'll be hurt by it. I'm not going to do it. Because of a right regard, a love and fear. That's the sense that we're talking about. We, we as the children of God, we're not worried about final judgment. But we're also more concerned with his pleasure than ours. That he would be pleased and delighted with us. It, the thought that he would be displeased or upset or grieved with us. Like... No, I don't want that. I don't want him to be disappointed. That sense of fear. But I, but I know that, but what about the kid who goes, I know that even if he's disappointed, he's my dad, so he's going to forgive me. It's going to be okay. Good kid? No. And so we can understand these analogies, and I hope you find them helpful as we get a sense of this. Um, Regarding Job, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him all in all the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God. See, part of it is this, and the reason why we're starting to see the word fears God in all of it is because, listen, it's not just um, obedient. It's not just service. It's because at the basis of their obedience and of their service are thoughts of God in whom they love and in whom they want to delight. So they do it. One, I'm going to have to move much more quickly. Cornelius is also spoken of in Acts 10 as one of those who feared God. I just have to jump down to, uh, to Nehemiah for a moment because... It's always been shocking when you, you meet those people who consider obedience an object of drudgery. And it gets linked with legalism. And that only happens because you're looking at, at the law and not the lawgiver. If you look at the lawgiver, then what? Yeah, all the laws seem good. Why? 
All the commandments seem good because you're looking at Him. But we get our eyes on the wrong things and that messes us up. This is why the scriptures can say things like this. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Excuse me? Delight to fear your name? How do delight and fear go together? Because fear is not terror. Fear is living in light and in a right regard for God. And there is a delight knowing this. What? His eye is upon me. And as by grace I live in obedience. As by grace I live in integrity. As by grace I live in godly character. He takes pleasure in those who fear God. Wow. So why do, would I delight to fear God? Because if it would please Him, there's nothing that would please me more than to know I'm pleasing Him. That's the cry of the God-fearer. Might I say, that's the cry of the God-lover. Let's see a little bit more. In uh, Psalm 112, verse 1, it says this, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. We saw last week also, and we've, we're, we've basically run out of time, the scripture has the ideas of fear and rejoicing side by side. The ideas of fear and comfort side by side. The ideas of fear and delight side by side. Why is that? How is it that we are called in the New Testament to walk in fear? In Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 22, it says, uh, he speaks of his ministry and then he does it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. It says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, let us bring cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness into completion in the fear of God. The fear of God has its right reality now. And, and really I could back it up to say this. God is first and foremost in all of our thoughts. And in all of our decisions. And in all of our actions. And so how would I, how would I summarize this? What does fear look at? It looks at God. In all of his glory and greatness. And with him is forgiveness, Psalm 130, in order that we might fear him. See? It's not the fear of no forgiveness, but the forgiveness we've received inspires that godly fear. What does fear listen to? God's word. What does fear feel like? Godly fear. Delighting. Rejoicing, hope, comfort, peace. What does fear live for? God, His play, praise, His pleasure, His glory. So when we consider this fear, this godly fear, what would it entail? It would entail a right regard for God, reverence and awe, 
A fear that not only does not forget God at any time, but a fear that seeks Him and His kingdom first in all things. A right regard for God. A right regard for God's Word. I must have it. I must be instructed in it. That I might know Him. That I might know what is pleasing in His sight. A right regard for God's will. Fear involves uh, the learning of God's Word. Fear involves the doing and obeying, putting into practice. A right regard for God's praise. And fear regards, reg, involves a right regard for God's glory. Let me pray.